It's got a lot of good barf in it, I bet. Yeah, it's filthy, dude. They're like, hey, it's all hazing, yeah. you know? Right, like, right. And then Todd Phillips undergoes hazing in the second half. So that's like p- funny, too, because he's getting like owned. <laughs> uh, and like, uh, I mean, he made him, we, we all know, he made a doc about Gigi Allen. Like, yeah. especially back then, yeah. he was, he thought of himself as this provocative artist you know so i think frat house is is speaks to that yeah he yeah it's like it's like uh you know maxim magazine presents f for fake you know (laughs) (laughs) the policeman isn't there to create disorder the policeman is there to preserve disorder gentlemen get the thing straight once and for all we clear the streets along this route deploy our men and create an impassable barrier That's hot out there. That's we all walk out there. Very, very, very hot. Open fire! Hello, friends, and welcome to the Gauntlet. I am one of your hosts, Eric Marsh, and as always, with me are Ryan Saunders and Andrew Stasulis. The Gauntlet is a weekly double feature podcast in which one of the hosts picks a topic for the week and the other two hosts pick movies in response to that topic. And we come on here and have it out. And it is episode 51. The truth is out there. And boy, oh boy, it sure is. As I asked the guys here to bring me films about extraterrestrials and our perhaps our relationship to them and uh that's more or less what happened this week uh <laughs> i think so yeah <laughs> Anyone who knows me uh, knows that I like a good uh, science fiction film or story. Uh, I've got a cat named Scully, of course. My wife and I, Kyle, big fans of the X-Files and and many other uh, similar things, you know? So that's been sort of swirling around, you know, the Gauntlet studio recently. Andy's been watching X-Files. I've been re-watching Kolchak, The Night Stalker. We've just been going sci-fi mode uh, over here. So I thought we could, you know, keep that going, especially since there was the, you know, uh, congressional hearing on UFOs mm-hmm. uh, very recently. Uh, not that that really amounted to anything. These things never really do, you know. But uh, yeah, it's just been sort of present, uh, present in my mind. Thought we'd have a little bit of fun with it. So uh, why don't we uh, get it started, Andy? Why don't you tell us about the film you brought first? Of course, it would be my pleasure. Um, you know, I, as you mentioned, have been uh, diving back in to the X-Files. And, and as you also know, I was a, a, a huge cold chat guy. Oh, yeah. Uh, you got me into it. Yeah. Um, and, and so when you gave us the, the topic, uh, a movie popped into my head that, that kind of has always felt like uh, a feature film uh, like in the vein of those shows, like it kind of feels like 
on a certain level, it's always felt to me like a feature length version of uh, the the same kind of spirit you get in uh, episodes of the X Files or uh, Kolchak the Night Stalker. On a certain level, even though the topic is uh, the truth is out there, it's kind of a film that suggests perhaps the truth is in there. The film is <laughs> from 1987, directed by Jack Shoulder, The Hidden. Uh, there is in this movie something strange going on in the City of Angels in Los Angeles, California. Uh, seemingly normal, everyday citizens of the fair city are suddenly going berserk. And, and, and launching uh, wild crime sprees. And it has de- Detective Tom Beck, played by Michael Nury, who is definitely not Chris Sarandon, Prince Humperdinck from The Princess Bride. I feel like I always have to point that out to people because they look so Very similar. Close, yeah. I mean, this guy looks just like Chris Sarandon, but he is definitely not. Anyway, he plays a, a Los Angeles detective that is, of course, baffled by by what the hell is going on. The movie opens with a wild uh, bank robbery that leads into a very badass chase across the streets of L.A. And uh, lots of cops are shot. Lots of citizens are hurt. It's just a, a crazy opening. And, and he cannot understand, nor can any of the other cops, like what the hell is going on with these normal people who don't have criminal records suddenly becoming... Uh, like psychotic, uh, murdering uh, criminals. Enter FBI agent Lloyd Gallagher, played, of course, by the one and only Kyle McLaughlin, who is here to assist Detective Tom Beck and to assist the Los Angeles Police Department in explaining this uh, seemingly inexplicable crime spree from average citizens. Uh, and it's it's he who really uh, leads back to uh, the the discovery that it isn't necessarily the the citizens themselves, but an alien presence that is taking over their bodies and leading them on this very wanton path of destruction and violence. Uh, It is a very interesting collision to me between great genre cinema, it's a a great buddy cop film from the 80s, but with a very, very, very interesting sci-fi twist to it. So it's really a, a beautiful collision between two great genres in a film that goes so fucking hard for 90 straight minutes. It's got a great cast, not just Michael Newry and Kyle McLaughlin, but a, but a really great supporting cast of so many wonderful character actors that, that uh, if you've seen a film from the 1980s or 90s, especially a genre film, especially an action film or a crime film, you've seen so many of these faces and, and everybody is game for this wild ass ride. So that is the film that I brought, The Hidden. 
I got to be honest, I hadn't seen it, nor was I even really familiar with it uh, at all. And uh, lo and behold, you know, there's quite a few people I saw on Letterboxd I know who are, are big fans of it. And I feel, yeah, you know, like the, the kid in school who, you know, like hasn't heard of the, the newest band, you know, and, or I guess in this case, the old, an old band uh, from 1987. But uh Thank you very much for that, Andy. Uh, Ryan, I'm a little bit less enthusiastic, of course, about the film that you brought to the table. Uh, if you want to call it a film, you know, I was thinking uh, this is a milestone for us this episode. We are crossing the 100 film mark, uh, which is very exciting. Another arbitrary milestone that we can, you know, hang our hats on. Uh, so we, that's exciting. And then, yeah, maybe... Maybe we're stuck at 100. Is this actually a film? We will discuss that, I think. Ryan, why don't you tell us about what you brought? Yeah, I mean, you know, for what it's worth, it did play at the Warsaw Film Festival and the Cambridge Film Festival uh, throughout yeah. 2005. So Two reputable international film festivals. Yes, I would say so. I'm not disputing that. <laughs> so, you know, this was one of those situations where... When you said the prompt, again, this was the first thing that came into my mind, and it was something that I really struggled to get out of my mind. I did a lot of research. I was looking at some films. I had, you know, my classic international art house masterpiece version to, to answer this prompt, but I couldn't stop thinking about this film. And I first encountered this film a few years ago, and I, we sort of put it on as a laugh, me and a friend. We had it on as background noise, but there were images from it that have sort of been permanently etched in my mind whenever I think about someone who is obsessed with aliens and UFOs. It has now become completely synonymous with the central figure of this film, and that figure is Dan Aykroyd. The film I brought to the table is Dan Aykroyd Unplugged on UFOs from 2005, directed by David Sereda. And I should also qualify that, you know, the reason I picked it, and uh, apart from the fact that it was just like, you know, clawing at my brain, I, I did have a little sidebar with Andy, and I had mentioned to him, like, you know, I've got some ideas, but I do have sort of a, you know, kind of an out there, a bit of a troll option, I would say. And Andy said he did as well. And <laughs> I, I, I felt compelled to, if I had made the decision, just to spring it on both of you because I assumed it would elicit a large reaction. But Andy shared his troll option, and it was also this. So to me, it felt like fate. I, I thought, you know, yeah. we've got both of us here have Ackroyd on the brain, so we might as well dive in and see what is going on in that man's brain. And, you know, certainly... That's what happens in this film. This film is probably about an hour-long conversation that the filmmaker had with Dan Aykroyd and then supplemented by a variety of reused stock footage and alien encounters that have been captured by you know people with really pixelated and hazy digital camcorders in the early 2000s. Um, a couple, you know, official government captured video that's that's provided in here as well but really what this film is is just a sweaty clammy Dan Aykroyd in a plaid shirt uh, a little bit of like a maroon vest and an alien green tie which is kind of a nice touch chain smoking 
and just unloading all of his thoughts about aliens, about reverse engineering alien technology, abductions, his own relationship to extraterrestrials and encounters he's had with other folks that have also supposedly encountered aliens. And, you know, I mean, it's it's the type of film that's sort of self-explanatory because when you think about, you know, UFO nuts... Um, this is what pops into your head. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Truly, this type of cinema, right? There are so many streaming services that are just flooded with you know, Z-grade, zero-budget UFO documentaries. The History Channel, you know, stereotypically has become just a dumping ground for these types of films. For There's a built-in audience, I think, for, you know, UFO obsessives. And this film is designed with that in mind. It was clearly edited on iMovie. It's a really shoddy production. Um, not a lot of thought was put into the care of the edits, uh, what was omitted and what was left in. There's multiple moments where Dan Aykroyd's uh, like smoker's cough is heard. Even if it's off screen, it would have been the easiest thing to remove. I'm very frequently removing both of my compatriots here, their smoker's coughs as I'm <laughs> editing episodes Prove of it. The Gauntlet. And, uh, you know, what? Aykroyd's is left in there. And I think that it, you know, it certainly adds something. Aykroyd is a character that is uh, quite intriguing to spend this amount of time with, especially since he's just sitting there enthusiastically sharing all of this information with us. And, you know, for what it's worth, I was entertained. I was nervous that it was going to be something that was just really a tough sit, just absolutely dreadful. And maybe you both, you know, have a different opinion on this, but. I was frantically writing down notes. I was hanging on to every word this man was saying. And I'm not encouraging people to necessarily go and seek this out, but maybe to just stick around for our conversation about it so we can share with you some of these highlights of Dan Aykroyd unplugged on UFOs from 2005. That's what I, that's what I picked. Good evening, my fellow Americans. <laughs> the sighting over Washington yesterday has alarmed many of you. However, please do not... We close? Yeah, we're closed. 2001 was a real space odyssey for me. Instead of flying on a spaceship to the moon, Jupiter, or beyond the solar system, I met Dan Aykroyd for the first time to talk about UFOs. That's when I knew I had to sit him down in front of a camera and just let him talk about the truth. Because if I didn't, no one would believe we had this amazing conversation. Thank you very much, Ryan. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I think uh, I think we'll have a good conversation about it. And specifically, you know, we'll start by connecting these films. And I think that's a pretty easy thing to do. But, you know, one thing I noticed that Aykroyd and Sereda are both kind of uh, obsessed with, right, is the idea of are these aliens? Because it's not a question of whether or not they exist. Obviously, mm -hmm. in Unplugged, you know, they talk about that, right? Like, they exist, so that's where we're proceeding from, right? And so the, the question, of course, is always, are these extraterrestrials malevolent or benevolent? And I was really struck by how much musing there is on that, uh, you know, by Aykroyd, because... That really is the central kind of structuring device of the hidden, right? Uh, we have ultimately, at the end of the day, uh, 
two different kinds of aliens presented in the film. So I thought that was a, maybe a good place to start. I also think that there's something really interesting connecting these films about the perspectives of these extraterrestrials very much being an American perspective. So throughout The Hidden, the behaviors of the villainous alien in the film are very much so like ugly American behavior really just like shoving his face with you know greasy food at diners listening to loud music like rock music uh, being attracted to just like hot babes around town really like boorish activities that you would typically associate with when you think like the ugly American right he's like leaning into that fast cars you know loves money loves stealing shit and then whenever Dan Aykroyd and David are talking about aliens and whether they're benevolent just for example their reference point Dan Aykroyd shares about what would constitute a benevolent alien. How would we know? It's like, well, if suddenly all of the insurgents in Iraq, their weapons malfunctioned, we would know that the aliens were benevolent because they were providing that source of peace to the world, right? And, I mean, throughout the film, the Iraq war is invoked (laughs) multiple times. Mm -hmm. Um, But Uh I think a lot of that... Uh, The discussions about reverse engineering and military technology, it all kind of comes back to this American global power perspective of what the aliens could provide us or what type of threat they could be to us and our way of life. Yeah, I think, you know, for me, at least uh, addressing that aspect for, um, you know, what Aykroyd was, was talking about, you know, uh, I, I found in that, you know, a certain like... Yeah, I guess you could say naive, but uh, yeah, like a like a naive sweetness, you know, this kind of hopeful idea of aliens perhaps being able to to end war for us, you know. It's like you you you're saying, Marsh, you know, is, uh, are they benevolent or malevolent? And and I, I think ultimately he's sort of you know grappling with the idea that well, it could go either way, but it's certainly. Uh, apparent to me that that there's this kind of you know wishful thinking perhaps on his part that that they could really improve us as uh, as a world as people i mean at certain points he uses the word like unity and and unify us and as a like global uh, mm-hmm. military, right? That that we all need to unify all of our armies and technologies to face this this potential threat. Uh, and he he brings up you know how other politicians have have tried to invoke that. You know, it's like hey, let's instead of fighting each other, we should all fight the aliens or whatever that could potentially be here at any point in time. And you know, in his weird, perhaps like. Uh, slightly inebriated, coked out, weed-infused brain. Uh, he, he, he straddles that line, but it seemed to me at times that there's this kind of really sweet, childish side of him that that thinks, you know, he kept bringing up the movie The Day the Earth Stood Still. He brings that up, like, several times. Like, that's his, like... Like it's, like it's real. Like it's real, yeah. yeah. And it's mm-hmm. it's like his... It's kind of like his Bible for, yeah. for like, an alien encounter. And, and again, like, in a sort of wishful way, like, looking at that movie and being like, this is what it could 
you know, be. They, they could come here and, and try to, to end war, to, to bring us all together for good reasons. But I will say he does reference the fact that, that it, it would probably be us. Uh, if they were benevolent, it's probably us who would fuck it up. Yeah, that's true. Right? Yeah, I mean, so I mean, he is all over the place, but I, I, I think that you know, in the long run, he's a guy that that you know is very, very stoked about the idea of aliens manifesting themselves for us. Yeah, I, I, I see what you're saying, but I think the the presence of of Serata on top of Ackroyd, uh, you know, muddles things even further because you know I think there is actually an an interesting question of like whose film this is, right. you know? Yeah. But specifically, they you know they both invoke you know ideas of military superiority a lot, uh, and both of them invoke. Russia and China explicitly over and over and over again, which is amazing because, again, it's 2005. It's not 1980. Anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because they're usually saying the Soviets whenever yes. they're brought up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's a very Cold War mentality to the whole thing, which which troubled me and, and less so Ackroyd than, than the guy who made this movie, because I was thinking like, yeah, the, right, right. Like it's Independence Day. We should all unify so we can fight the bugs. And I'm thinking, yeah, one one man's sort of like, you know, wish fulfillment is another man's Starship Troopers. You know, <laughs> like, oh uh-huh. man, yeah. It is. I mean, it is. Uh, it is a wild, wild conversation. And and I, I got to say, I'm I'm, you know, uh, with Ryan on this one. I, I ended up taking way more notes on the Dan Aykroyd film than I did on The Hidden. I mean, <laughs> yeah. The Hidden is just, I, I i told you both, you know, before we got into it, when we were like laying down these picks and yeah, Ryan and I had consulted and we were kind of like, fuck it, let's do it, you know, on, on Aykroyd. I was like, well, I can promise you a certified banger. I mean, The Hidden is is a very straightforward film and it's, 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 it is exactly what you, you want it to be, even if it's unexpected, because it's, it's got a lot of, I think, pleasures that, that just kind of, uh, pop out at you. Yeah. I mean, it's an extremely sturdy piece of work too, you know, which also sometimes lends to like, maybe I'm writing less notes down because I'm just captivated. I'm just watching. It's got me there. They're in control of me while something as disjointed and disorganized and chaotic as the Ackroyd thing, all I'm thinking about is <laughs> just potentially, how are these decisions made? What is actually this implying? And just like trying to read between the lines of what on earth could be going on in these two dudes' brains. Yeah. And my point being that in that sense, like the film really works for me because it like, it pulls my brain Onto their like level of of thinking uh, for yeah. for the eighty two minutes or whatever uh, the running time on this thing is, and yeah, suddenly I'm uh, you know trying to make connections, and even if uh, a lot of what I'm also doing is like fact checking the, the bullshit that <laughs> that various people are saying, or or suddenly looking up a guy on Wikipedia and being like, oh shit, this guy's a Nazi or whatever, yeah, you know. Yeah. Like, uh, <laughs> I mean, like I, I'm, I'm suddenly like staring at the wall, you know, that has all the the newspaper clippings on it and the the like red yarn attaching this 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 ever growing like web of of like 
paranoia and naivete and and hopeful uh hopeful uh, wish fulfillment or something but yeah i guess it's like it is interesting now that i'm thinking about it like the hidden is yeah it's like it's like clockwork and it's almost even you know one thing i thought while watching it is it's almost even devoid of subtext like ryan brought out the most explicit stuff going on which is this kind of like you know the the bad alien running around as a human is like very materialistic in an 80s way but it doesn't go beyond that, you know, it, uh, thinking of it in relation to something like they live, you know, like it almost has nothing to say except on a shot to shot level where you're just like locked into this crazy adventure. Mm-hmm. Like I really was captivated. I mean, it flew by. It is really an exceptional kind of piece of filmmaking on an action level, you know? Yeah, it felt like it was 60 minutes long. It felt like an episode of television. It was so sturdy. And then, yeah, the UFO film, of course, is just, like, all subtext. Because, like... It felt like it was four hours long. Yeah, it felt like it was four (laughs) hours long. Like, this is just coming out of this guy's, like, id, you know? There's no, like... there's There's no structure. Like, things repeat over and over again. You get the same images, some of the same bits of information repeated um you get like 90s drawings of aliens which it turns out that the director did himself um there there's so much subtext going on in the in the construction of this film because yeah this guy is a a ufologist he's not a filmmaker you know and jack shoulder is a filmmaker and i do want to shout out the hidden has that new line sheen. And yes, of does. course, it was shot by Jacques Heitken, who shot a million movies for Wes Craven, shot Ambulance for Larry Cohen, and is just looks really nice, uh, especially the color work because it is this like alien movie. There's a, a green motif that sort of like shades every scene and every aspect of the movie that I found really impressive because it's not overbearing but it's there and it just like has this kind of green alieny vibe to mm-hmm. it you know yeah absolutely yeah watching the hidden just on a shot to shot level it felt as if i was nodding and going mm-hmm yes mm-hmm yes yes and then watching <laughs> something like dan Aykroyd unplugged and we get texts that say you know 3.7 million americans claim to have been abducted by aliens like within the past few years according to a roper poll you just go hold on hold on hold on what wait really you know you're constantly doubting the information it's giving you you're perplexed by a lot of the decisions that um Uh, the conversation is like structured around if you could even really call it a structure i mean there are some key points we go from like abductions to roswell to reverse engineering to then like the iraq war and benevolence and things like that but truly it's rather formless in, in that sense yes indeed it is uh but you know i think to to go back to one thing you 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 said which you know is is just sort of about like the way the hidden moves i think that's what makes this movie uh like so so fucking good is the fact that there isn't a whole lot of time to think you know there isn't a whole lot of downtime in this movie to to start questioning anything really i mean there is a 
a, a, a sort of, at least in the first 15 minutes, a little bit of a mystery element, like what's going on, but that is cleared up uh, very quickly when we see uh, the alien emerge from this man who's been, you know, committing all these crimes and has the police baffled. You know, he, he took like 15 bullets before he finally went down. And in the hospital, there's this great bit of practical effects where the alien has to, to find a new body and emerges from his, his mouth. And so again, for us as the audience, you know, within, yeah, the first 15 minutes of the movie, it's like, oh, this is what we're dealing with. Okay, we're on board. And and we don't question anything. You know, we understand fully what's happening. And even when Kyle MacLachlan shows up as Lloyd Gallagher, uh, I, I love using this phrase. We use this a lot for, like, you know, detective work and mysteries. But, again, you don't have to be Columbo, I think, uh, to 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 realize that Lloyd Gallagher, Kyle MacLachlan's character, is is not uh, what what he seems to be either, right? It comes across right away in the performance, and I think it's even a testament to the film that they're not really hiding it from the audience. Not at all. Whereas, yeah, like it goes on for a while where Beck, the detective, doesn't know that Kyle MacLachlan is not human, but from the minute he shows up, the vibe is off, you know? like I mean, like, give it up to Kyle MacLachlan as well. Because he has just such an alien presence in the way that he interacts with objects, the way he just enters a room and looks at people, his speech patterns. I mean, it's a really, like, nuanced performance from him. Uh, I mean, again, like I said, I think there's a lot of great performances in this film because all the various character actors who have to embody the other alien, you know, who, who end up getting taken over, uh, they are all amazing at, at sort of just becoming this, this, you know, it's, it's funny you use the phrase, like when you were talking about Dan Eckert, like id, you know, and, and that's really what the alien is. Yeah. You know, it's just like pure id that, that goes inside these people. And then, you know, without emotion, suddenly, just is, you know, uh, I think, you know, Kyle McLaughlin's character says, like, whatever it wants, it suddenly, like, needs to have it, and it will kill anybody that gets in its way, and and that's, yeah, as Ryan, you pointed out, often just very material things, like a car, or a stereo, or some CDs, or a, a plate of food in a diner, you know, whatever it is, it just, it just wants that, and it will get it, it will take it. But that is, to me, though, where I do think some, you know, I guess I would slightly see it a different way, Marsh, you know, for me, that is where some of the, the almost satire comes out about the eighties and the me generation and, and the materialism that's there. And I don't think that you were saying that none of that's there. I I think it's just that it's, it's presented in a way that, that isn't so in your face. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that, you know, savvy people can, can read it and see into it that it's like, oh yeah, this guy is like a parody of an American. And I think that's the point that you were getting at, Ryan. It's mm-hmm. it's funny that this alien just comes to Earth and is like, this shit rules, right? This is what you need. You need money. You need a car. You need a fast car that's going to turn heads. Rock music, fast, hard rock music. Like all these things are are seen and experienced in so much media from the 80s. And, and in this, like, because of the way 
the the alien characters sort of interacting with it 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 really for me like it, it makes that stuff suddenly alien i keep thinking about something you said earlier too marsh how the base of dan Aykroyd unplugged is that aliens do exist and the film like moves forward from that presupposition right and i guess something i meant to ask at the beginning of this is you know i'm just curious are you both believers? Not maybe to the extent of Dan Aykroyd, but I am curious. I've never asked either of you this. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, me too. Okay, just checking. <laughs> sure. <laughs> it's just mathematics, right? Uh, I mean, Truly. on a certain level, uh, when you consider how vast the universe fucking is, right? Or perhaps even the multiverse, if you want to even get into the the, the quantum physics that, <laughs> yeah. that Aykroyd also likes to get yeah, into. He predicts the multiverse of madness in this movie. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, and so I, I've always operated from that that standpoint. So I guess I'm, yeah, I'm on that base level with them. I think for me, where all this stuff usually uh, it, it comes in then is is... You know, the the question that I think they are also taking uh, for a given, which is that they're already among us. And I guess that's also right. the case of, of The Hidden, you know, that, yeah, shit, they're already here. Uh, yeah, I mean, David Serrata at one point claims that with the amount of sightings that have been recently popping up leading up to 2005, that he thinks Earth is under attack by extraterrestrials. <laughs> yeah, he says they've reached an omega point. <laughs> <laughs> and then, like, quickly mentions, like, we are going to run out of oil by 2026, Dan. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> See, and that's, and that's when they get into the... That's when they get into that weird shit with that guy, John Hutchison, who I was a little bit familiar with. And, uh, yeah, this whole thing about... Basically, like maglev technology. Uh, I don't know how much you guys know about that John Hutchison guy, but not a ton. I mean, I did some cursory research on all the people who popped up in in this film, but I, I definitely defer to you here. Yeah, well, this guy. For those who don't know, like at a certain point, they they Serata especially and and Aykroyd, you know, they they both just like refer to Hutchison as like this like very serious scientist. And uh, I, I think in the world of science, Hutchison has been has been pretty much proven to be like a charlatan, and like he's even come out and admitted it. And I think he admitted it before this fucking movie was made. Like his claims of being able to 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 make you know, like in the movie they show famous footage, and I've seen some of the other footage before of this guy like making a, a seventy five pound cannonball like float, right? Yeah. yeah, it's all it's 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 all been fake. I mean, he could never replicate it outside of the the video, the, some of the video that he had put together. But they both like see in Hutchison like that that opportunity for us to to get off oil. Like we just need Hutchison's like floating cannonball technology or whatever, and they 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 take that as like actual legitimate scientific discovery that. Like a lot of their conclusions uh, in this film come down to simply like the government deeming it like too dangerous or 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 right. you know, that that it's already happening, but they're trying to keep it all under wraps, hush hush, for 
the alien attack. Like when the alien attack comes, all this secret technology that they've been developing, all of Hutchison's stuff is suddenly just going to come flying out of secret bases, right? Like they don't want the aliens to to see our 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 uh, our top secret weapons that we can potentially use to defend ourselves, right? right? <laughs> it's true it's true yeah yeah i mean and even thinking too about the oil the amount of times that the climate crisis is brought up was uh pretty surprising to me for something from 2005 i mean i know it was like you know becoming a part of the vernacular at the time but even just you know dan Aykroyd is very clear that we have completely charred the planet and that you know it's all it feels irreversible and that the mm-hmm. only way that we could be saved from this catastrophe would be the involvement of extraterrestrials and that i mean even at one point david serrata asks dan like I mean, if dan Aykroyd was the ambassador if you were the ambassador for earth what message would you teletype to et if i were to speak for mankind to these beings that were, were coming here um <clears throat> i guess what I would say is, you know, let's go to some neutral place. Um, Let's have a meeting with scientists from all around the world, world leaders. Let's sit down and and basically have a sort of a forum with with you, the the extraterrestrial or extra-dimensional beings. Let's let's sit down and kind of get to know each other. So we can, like, address these problems directly and see how we can, you know, put all of our forces together and solve this. We've seen how that doesn't work in uh, Abulgans's La Fin du Monde. Uh, <laughs> it's true. Before, it's true. you know, they got all the top scientists together and, uh, you know, the Earth still got destroyed anyway. Yeah, and I mean, like, that's that's where, you know, again, when I watch this stuff, as, as sympathetic as I can be to the idea of aliens and and pondering that and and thinking about how small we are you know when it starts to get into like the nuts and bolts of all this stuff like that's really when like the crackpot shit comes out you know and that's that really is where for me like yeah a lot of it 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 falls apart and and again especially this stuff about you know, when you really lean heavily into the conspiratorial aspect of, you know, they have this technology, they're already developing it, they're already working on it and mm-hmm. all this stuff, you know, because to me, again, it, it, it kind of goes into the territory of, uh, for me, like a lot of conspiracy thinking that involves like, especially the United States government, where I, I just look at at uh, just the day-to-day administration of this country and and see nothing but ineptitude <laughs> and like just just general fuckery that that the people who then believe that there's a sort of element of the upper echelons of our government who are able to maintain this level of secrecy this level of you know uh of complicity of just you know at a certain point, even just like average soldiers, like just rank and file government employees who who have secret bases and and are able to to basically live an entire life sworn to fucking secrecy. Like that's just where it all falls apart for me, because I'm just like, there's no way that 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 kind of shit could exist on a, on a human level in the goddamn United States of fucked up America. What you're not considering is that most light is invisible. As Serrata points out many, many times, most light 
it's invisible. You can't see it. Yeah, we can see red to like violet. Was that how <laughs> yeah, that's framing it? That's true. And you know, as as Aykroyd pointed out, that he's talked to guys who suggest there could be as many as twenty one dimensions. So, you know, I'm I you know they're playing four D or perhaps twenty one D chess, and I'm I'm stuck over here. You know, playing uh, computer chess or something yeah, like absolutely. that on an old Coleco. <laughs> I mean, yeah, especially there's so many contradictions in these types of arguments that they're presenting, too, which is, I think, what partially you're getting at, especially when it comes to government stuff, because they're talking about it as if, yeah, there are these blueprints for unbelievable tech that's being developed and hidden from everyone, and that the the visible tech that we're being presented with is just like a smokescreen for what they've actually been creating because of our encounters with extraterrestrials. So that like the base argument there is that we can't trust the government. And then like moments later, they talk about how the truth of extraterrestrials like should be completely self-evident now because the Mexican government has officially released footage of unidentified yeah. light that's being like moving in groups over the landscape and they they return to that Mexican footage so much and very explicitly mention like the government put this out it has to be real we've just had a rash of sightings all over the planet and we've got iran and turkey and mexico i mean it seems like we're being invaded by ufos but it's like every other talking point related to the government is we cannot trust what they're telling us uh because we know what they're actually up to and here it's like well we can of course, trust them in this situation. This is real footage. They put it. It was on CNN and Fox. That's what he loves to say. He's oh, like the God. two the two polarities there. You know. If I may quote uh, the hidden, am I crazy or does this just seem a little bizarre? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, no, you're not crazy at all. I mean, I mean, and that's the thing. Again, you go back to the technology. Like, man, I followed the development of the F-35 a lot, you know, as, as that was, you F know. F for fail. Yeah, as that was, you know, a big, like, just sinkhole of, of our tax dollars. And I remember at a certain point in its very problematic cycle of, of development that one of the biggest issues they were having was the goddamn helmets. And the helmet alone cost a million dollars, and yet they couldn't quite figure out how to make it work. The pilots were like, Blacking out flying this thing. You know, the helmets were fucked up and extremely expensive. That I go, okay, this is just a fighter that we all know about, that they are proudly trumpeting as the most advanced tactical fighter aircraft in the fucking world. And the goddamn thing doesn't fucking work. So, again, to get to that point of them just being like, they can't make a fucking fighter plane work, but they could make this strange experimental aircraft that has like maglev technology and can just you know turn on a dime suddenly and stop uh, the g-forces from like liquefying somebody's internal organs <laughs> like no uh his whole thing like his justification for for like alien advanced like advanced alien technology at a certain point like Ackroyd like lays out the 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 timeline you know and he's like he's like you look at us right and then you got to think about them like look at where we've gone in the history of aviation over the last 100 years now imagine if they had a thousand years of development 10,000 years a million years right of course they, they have this advanced technology. And I was thinking, like, we also have a million years of development as a civilization. Like, this is the point, right? 
go back to us like developing from from whatever fucking primordial soup we came from. That's what it fucking looks like. We already have it. And here's where we are. Truly. I also think something funny that he brings up a bunch and this kind of relates to the hidden is like this idea of the potentially invasive quality of extraterrestrials as in physical invasion, like physically invading the human body. So in in the the hidden, there's wonderful 80s practical goopy effects, like incredible reproductions of the actors faces as this just slimy creature slithers out of the mouth in like this wonderful way where you can see the skin expanding and it has these real nasty hairy little legs that climb out so because that's something that's happening in the hidden i guess we should establish is that the alien keeps switching hosts and that's why there are these rampant crime sprees from people who seemingly are totally respectable citizens with no previous you know criminal activity it's because whoever the last person is to be around, you know, this vessel, this vessel that's failing the alien, it grabs the first thing it can seize, and the the slimy creature is transferred, you know, from mouth to mouth. Um, and which, in a way, reminded me of the John McNaughton alien film, The Borrowers, where he has to keep borrowing heads, uh, and it's like that idea of the human body being something that that can fail, right? Of course, just the body horror element of an alien invasion. But even Dan invokes that. And unplugged, uh, he talks uh, uh, <laughs> at length at one moment about how I think his quote is: uh, "Taking the sperm out of a man is traumatic, no matter how good the <laughs> motives are." <laughs> Which I thought was like a really surprising thing to say. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's where he gets into that whole like <laughs> benevolent, malevolent thing. That's I feel like the point where he's really like he gets kind of stuck up you know, on it. He gets kind of held up on it because he's just like, are they benevolent? I mean, even if they're doing scientific experiments, they are like, you know, stealing guys and jacking them off without their uh, (laughs) consent, you know? And that's, that's, that's horrible. Anyway, you slice it, you know, even if it's for scientific study, (laughs) I mean, and I think that's one of the moments where I really noticed the beads of sweat on the side of his head. Like, did they have any air conditioning in that room? What the hell is going on? It didn't look like it. Yeah. He was sitting on like a hot leather chair and you could tell that they were, you know, trying to keep out any light that might've been spilling in with these ugly kind of dusty blinds. And he had just like a hot light right on his face it was clearly one light source that david brought to set in order to light dan yeah i mean his his at some points his beads of sweat almost look like tears which i found surprisingly touching only because when dan Aykroyd is smoking he kind of looks like my father (laughs) they like smoke (laughs) in very similar ways uh so that was just all around an odd emotional experience watching dan's body um as he was reflecting on extraterrestrials and yet David Serrata, cool as a cucumber, and a very strange, like, vacant look on his face, reminding me very much like the people uh, from The Hidden who've been taken over by them. I was just going to say, yeah. I have a literal note that says David is invaded by The Hidden. One of those hidden beings is in David. Absolutely. And I think even speaking of the bead of sweat, you know, several beads of sweat rolling down Aykroyd's face, it reminds me of 
probably my favorite of the hosts, Miller, who is, you know, the the one that we explicitly see at the beginning being overtaken by this slug-like alien. Inseminated. Oh, God, it's so disgusting, as has been pointed out, I think, multiple times. And and Miller, the, the, the deal with him, too, right, is that he's in the hospital because he's, like, dying, yeah. right? He's got all kinds of organ problems. Mm-hmm. And a bad so, ticker. Yeah, right from the get-go, it's a it's a bad host. And that accounts for, I think, a, a ton of comedy and a ton of pleasure uh, in that first part of the movie where this guy Miller, you know, having been overtaken by this alien, is like burping and kind of like he, he, it seems like he'll burst at any moment. And in <laughs> fact, one of, my, one of the best like little, you know, bits of effects is when you know part of the alien like bursts out of his arm in this like total Cronenberg disgusting body horror moment and then he just like tapes it up <laughs> yeah, yeah. like get back in there you know I know it's fake you know like, he's literally held together with tape at a certain yeah. point <laughs> yeah. and that guy is just yeah a very solidly built man distorting his body and face you know in this performance uh, was very enjoyable Yeah, and and, you know, that's what's funny is like looking at other reviews of this film, you know, not friends of mine on Letterboxd who who get it, but but in other reviews I've seen of this movie, there are people who are kind of like, you know, uh, there there should have been more comedy or this, that, and the other, you know, like the tone is a little wrong here. And I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, there's just enough comedy in this, and and so much of it comes in through what you're talking about, Marsh, like the various people that this alien is suddenly, uh, I guess, embodying, you could say, uh, and and how the alien is kind of like noticing the differences between us, between humans, that we're not all made equal. And and just again, the way that the actors are able to to kind of capture that that aliens uh voyage of discovery journey of discovery that uh there are there are there are good models and bad models there are fun models and there are are econo models and and yeah miller the second guy uh also has i think one of the best scenes where he he suddenly is just like out there already again on a crime spree and he's 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 trying to find another car because as as gallagher informs Detective Beck, uh, this particular guy is very partial to Ferraris. And so at a certain point, he just like sprinting down the street of LA and like runs to a Ferrari dealership. And there is again this this just almost like parody of the 1980s, you know, hot rods, fast cars, exotic cars, foreign cars. He goes to this Ferrari dealership. And there's like a, a a shady car salesman who's got this guy. They just went on like a test drive. That alien now in Miller just walks up in the middle of this like car deal and looks at this Ferrari and just says, I want this car. car. <laughs> I'll bet you do, dear. It's so funny because so much of that comedy isn't even doesn't have like that much explicit attention drawn to it. Because when they go back into the dealer's office, as they're signing the paperwork to you know, purchase this car. They're both doing lines of coke out of the trunk of a little toy Ferrari that he has on his <laughs> desk. He's like cutting it for him. He's like, it's really good stuff. Please have some more. And he's just like rubbing it all over his gums. And the film 
has lots of moments of comedy like that peppered throughout, but it's never shoving it in your face. They're always like so perfectly deployed. So that was like a truly shocking moment and elicited literal like loud laughter from us while we were watching it. Just all of a sudden, like first we thought it was truly absurd that we've got this alien demanding a card, but they even reveal that humanity is more bizarre in that moment too. Sharing cocaine with your car dealer, you know? Yeah, I mean, there is, you know, ju- jumping ahead a little bit, but but once the aliens, uh, the, the two, the one, you know, that that's going off on all these crime sprees and then the one that's inside uh, Comic Lachlan's character, Lloyd Gallagher, uh, who we also discover is is not exactly who he thinks or says he is either. But but you know these two aliens like have a a conversation at a certain point, and and the bad one, the the really malevolent one, at a certain point is even describing his own race and like why he really wants to be here, why he wants to be in America, and he's like. Altarians, I think, is the race, his alien race. That's what they're yeah. called. Uh, he's like, you know, Altarians are a disgusting, dirty, filthy people. And this, this rocks. You know, he sees this as like <laughs> the, the the heights of civilization. And as you pointed out, again, it's like, it's just shitty, like West Hollywood, Los Angeles in the 80s. <laughs> and everything is like rotten and disgusting. You know, these these grimy strip clubs, these like shitty, like punk record stores. and Importer like, warehouse. Importer <laughs> warehouse. Yeah, just some guy like dealing coke and arms. And like, and this alien is just like, now this this is living. I love the escalation too that you already were sort of building towards where, yeah, he finds new models and the alien even comes up with an even crazier plan. But first it becomes a stripper, Brenda. Mm -hmm. And that has its own voyage of discovery where, yeah, in that body, it starts, you know, feeling around like, oh, this is different. You know, sort yeah, of you this can is see nice. the alien like processing the, yeah, the human sexes as it were. Uh, and then also it, it becomes apparent at a certain point that uh, the alien has its eyes on a senator who has been in the news and kind of bustling around the story. So even then, I guess, you know, back to that 80s sort of critique, uh, it's in there as well. All of a sudden, this alien's like, I want Senator. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I could be very, I could get whatever I wanted. Yeah, you know? I, I want the one that everyone <laughs> is listening to and applauding for, I think right. is what he says. And again, going back to that idea of discovery, I mean, there really is a trajectory. The alien starts with just average like insurance salesmen's or insurance salesman or something like that you know he's just like in just some guy who's just some fucking like nine to five office worker and he keeps kind of like leveling up right at a certain point he gets into this the stripper and discovers wow sex in this country is power i'm sexy these men will give me what i want because of the way i look because i'm attractive and then he gets inside of a police officer and it's like being a cop gives you power i've got a badge right oh if i'm an even higher up cop i've got more power oh a senator that's power and then ultimately you know which again is getting getting way ahead of ourselves once he's the senator, how he, in a press conference, suddenly announces uh, his candidacy for presidency and just simply announces it by saying, I want to be president. 
And again, everyone like applauds it. And what I love about, again, to me, the implication here is that if he is to carry on from this point, he will be elected. Like, that's enough. Just being this like white senator and saying, I want to be president. The joke being, well, of course he'll be elected. Right. You know, he doesn't have like a campaign platform. Like, that's just simply it. That kind of weird entitlement of being someone now from this class. Like, the logical next step for me is to become president. Like, that's it. You know, that's, again, to me, the subtlety in so much of what this film is 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 trying to, to play with about the 80s particularly, you know? I also love just talking more about the body horror element and thinking about that idea of power, the way that the alien is always pushing the human body to its absolute limits and thinking about like how far it can take the human body. Because at multiple points in the film, as people are trying to take down whatever host the alien is currently in, you know, the first one, which is from that bank robbery and then the crazy car chase, his body is, you know, riddled with dozens of bullets, completely charred from the car wreck and the fire. Uh, later on, he's got right the man that has like a failing stomach and a bad heart but then witnessing the the body like keeping it alive well past its expiration date for both of those humans even then it uses it starts to utilize the hosts and their bodies as a source of power even further so when the alien is brenda of you know the harem room right the the alien literally fucks another man to death in a car, <laughs> right? Utilizing the power of the human body. Like, we're never even given explicit details, just it looks like he's been fucked to death. Like, that's, <laughs> that's what he did when he was in Brenda's body, which mm -hmm. is crazy. My favorite host, though, you know, we're talking about our favorite hosts uh, that the alien decides to take on is definitely the one after Brenda, and that is when uh, he becomes the lieutenant's dog. And there are some <laughs> incredible reaction shots uh, of the dog in this film growling at Kyle McLaughlin from a distance. Um, and then eventually when, because this is like the dog of the, the police lieutenant, when the alien decides he needs to leave the dog and join into the lieutenant, who himself is just like this, you know, I've mentioned it before, like an absolute unit of a person, just like a crazy looking man, really beefy. The dog slams him into a refrigerator and gets him down on the ground. But I honestly would have been perfectly comfortable spending at least 20 more minutes with the alien inside of the dog. I thought that was really oh, yeah. inspired and just loved watching how they shot that. I am a big fan of like great animal acting. We had an earlier episode where we <laughs> looked into it. some yeah. very, yes, very good animal acting. And this deserves uh, uh, an honorable mention just for, yes. as you said, that limited time we have with the dog. Like it really, this movie does not for me like miss a beat. You know, every single twist and turn it takes is another moment of pure fun and great craft and care in you could argue like a very like workmanlike film i mean it's not flashy in any respect i think it's very briskly edited like that really helps out like the film's pacing but but just the fact that like we get just enough time with each of these various hosts and moments to sort of like ring out what we need like what the film needs, what the story needs, how to progress. And then, yes, it's like leaping on to the next segment, the next sequence that that has 
new pleasures for us to discover, like the alien itself. Right? Yeah, it reminds me of there's a moment where once Beck, you know, sort of discovers that Kyle MacLachlan is like maybe an alien, uh, he has him arrested and thrown into jail. But it's one of those things where it lasts like three minutes. You know, the movie doesn't stop like, oh, he's a, he's locked up now mm-hmm. because within a couple minutes, the alien lieutenant is in the police station, like wreaking havoc, tearing the place apart, blowing shit up. And uh, a classic pleasure we get here who I called it to Kyle when I heard the voice in the out of focus background, I was like, that's Trejo. That's Trejo. They got mm-hmm. him locked up. Of course, he's playing a prisoner. And then, you know, a few shots later, he he gets murked. You know, uh, in this in this you know comic action set piece. Yeah, and mm-hmm. that's right where uh, the two alien beings confront each other, and we learn that uh, Lloyd Gallagher, FBI agent from Seattle, is actually Al Haig. Al Haig. How do you like being human? It's all right. Better than being Altarian. Altarians are a filthy people. We could take over this place if we wanted. They have nothing here to stop us. Yo, hippie! What kind of dude are you? Yeah, I, you know, with Kyle as the alien, I agree that it's, like, not really hidden from us. I think it's pretty self-evident within the first 30 minutes of the film that this guy's off, that he's also probably an alien that's, you know, going after him. Because he keeps bringing up, oh, uh, like, he killed my partner, and then he later reveals he killed my wife and my daughter. And, it, you know, you start putting the pieces together. It's like, okay, this is, like, a long-standing feud that does not just take place on Earth. Yeah. He doesn't know how Alka Seltzer works, too. Dude, that's another that's, that's another key element there when yeah. when uh, he's given Alka Seltzer and he just like pops it like it's uh, it's candy or something. As Dan Aykroyd said, there are advanced beings skipping from galaxy to galaxy, and that is exactly what little of the backstory we get is like. Yeah, this is a, a galaxy hopping feud mm-hmm. going on between these two beings, and I think it gives it just enough, you know, mm-hmm. like you were saying, Andy, like just enough to chew on and imagine and have fun with, but no more because there's more things to blow up there's more car chases to happen you know like. yeah like that's where like the, the the buddy cop element really like shines through because yes we shouldn't say that beck is like a total clown i mean like he is suspecting that there's something off about this guy right and even when the the investigation uh doesn't quite seem to be tracking for beck once gallagher reveals this guy killed my partner Beck as a cop is just kind of like, well, then fuck it. Enough said, right? Like whoever you are, whatever you are, like I'm, I'm into this. Like I understand, you know, maybe if there is something off about you, maybe if you are a fucking alien, like you got a grudge. So I'm, I'm in this. And also the fact that like, yeah, this thing, whatever it is, is killing. Like when they read the rap sheet again of like stuff that happened prior to that opening bank robbery. I've got it. You want me to read it? Yeah, you can lay it down. Killed, Killed twelve people, people wounded twenty three more, stole six cars, most, most of them Ferraris. Ferraris. Robbed eight, eight banks, six, six supermarkets, supermarkets, four jewelry stores, and a candy shop. 
Six of the ones he killed, he carved up with a butcher knife. Two of them were kids. He did all that in two weeks. Yeah, Jesus! <laughs> and, and I would say, even beyond that, I think the heart of the film is in their gradual like friendship and at times oh, yeah. i found it yeah in in like the best vein of this like oh two different cops in this case one from earth and one from wherever you know these these oddball this oddball couple like coming together and and discovering that hey in spite of all their differences at the end of the day they both want the same thing justice right and i mean honestly that's kind of what's happening in Dan Aykroyd Unplugged on UFOs. When you think about it, it is sort of a buddy movie between the two of them. When Dan <laughs> is showing the most emotion in the film, it comes at moments like when David is bringing up the fact, oh, Dan, you know, remember when we were younger, like in school and doing operations on frogs and dissecting them and looking through them? We get like a couple reaction shots of Dan very warmly smiling and nodding like, ah, yes, David, like you're really taking me back right now, you know? And at various moments, David is really stroking Dan's ego. I mean, in the narration, he calls him like an Albert Einstein within the body of a comedic genius, which I guess is another interesting like thinking about the hidden and what's hidden inside of these vessels dan Aykroyd as a comedic vessel with like a ufologist like genius held within him but there is a relationship that is kind of happening in the background of this film or i guess maybe very explicitly as they discuss oh, yeah. but it's a bit of a buddy movie well i hate to say it but you know these two guys kind of remind me uh, of us you know because for them right their church is you know ufo lore and shit like that and and then for us it's movies right we could all sit around in a smoke-filled living room somewhere with no air conditioning just <laughs> rattling off the names of movies and actors for many many hours <laughs> right and i think there's an element of you know Aykroyd unplugged that satisfies that even though i don't know what he's referencing like i get it you know these guys at a certain point are just rattling off yeah. lore right yeah. like when they when they refer to the Shermer incident yeah, I'm like, they'll, what say, the fuck? yeah they'll say <laughs> shit right i wrote yeah herb Shermer in nebraska betty and barney hill the pascagoula incident travis walton he says that in just five seconds yeah, like so matter of fact just yeah. all the classic shit right and serratus frothing at the mouth nodding along <laughs> you know these guys are just remembering the classics because mm -hmm. yeah like we get all the classic shit we get roswell we get astronauts we get the nasa footage you know and uh, we get it of course in just like a scatterbrained manner because uh, there is no flow or chronology to this film because these guys are just remembering the classics yeah it's very much a rhizomatic conversation. 100%. <laughs> yeah, they are absolutely like just riffing. It does at times like, and that's, you know, the, the best of, of this movie is when it does take on that, that like that free jazz flow where, where yeah, suddenly one of them is off on just a little bit of a solo and the other one is just looking at him and going like, man, that bops, right? Like, <laughs> I mean, we are, we're reaching a point where as, as Stephen Bassett talks about his, his time clock, it's like the nuclear time clock uh, that we had in the 50s before we blew the world, you know, before we blew the world up. The theory that 
once the hands got to midnight, that's when all the nuclear weapons in the world would be discharged. Well, we've stopped that nuclear cl clock, thank thankfully. But as far as the UFO clock, he says we're, we're one minute to midnight now, uh, meaning that in, in a minute to midnight, something really, really spectacular is going to happen. Now, whether that's a mass uh, appearance, uh, whether that is, uh, you know, it come over to the Yankee Stadium during a game, I think the next, possibly the next, maybe even in the next five years, we're going to uh, have um, occasions uh, like the one I experienced in upstate New York in the mid-80s when I was, I woke up in the middle of the night and I said to my wife, they're calling me, they're calling me, I want to go outside, they want me to come outside and see, he said, who, 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 something outside wants me to come out and say, oh, just go back to bed. I went back to bed, but in the next day in the media, in newspapers, in radio, all over upstate New York and Ontario and Quebec and Vermont, people spoke about this urge they had to go out of their houses at three in the morning and look up into the sky and, and you can't help but but yeah get, i think caught up in it because as, as as cynical as i can be about what they're saying like at times it is kind of infectious oh, the, yeah. the enthusiasm that they they do both have for it and i i i think even dan Aykroyd at a certain point does just really get overcome with with emotion and and he smiles and he's like this is just so fun to me it's so fun and it struck me while watching it like looking at him and and thinking about like his journey and his career as as an actor as somebody that you know, in Serrata's words, as you pointed out, Ryan, is referred to as a comic genius. But somebody who does have a a, a special place on a certain level in mm -hmm. American comedy, in, you know, the Canadian legacy. Comedy. In Canadian <laughs> comedy, right. In comedy, right? And the, the legacy of 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 SNL, of of fucking Ghostbusters, which is, you know, for for so many dweebs on this planet, like, you know, their Bible. Uh you know, and, and his, his relationship to that, to people who are obsessed with the paranormal, like Ackroyd is this guy that, that holds like high esteem among certain people. But, but watching this, I couldn't help but see this guy now in 2005 is just like kind of a, a, a lonely man, <laughs> kind of in spite of all this, somebody who just seems like so alone on on a certain level because of the things that perhaps like really matter to him i mean like he's not here also like tying into his discussions of you know what he's done and who he is as this like big celebrity like he's just a guy and sees himself as just this like this weird being a, a wash on a planet of people who who can't possibly understand like what's actually out there right and then there's the two key moments where he does sort of shatter that you know strict ufo mindset because it when it intersects with his celebrity public self right because oh, yeah. there's two yeah, yeah. for me <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, a, a smaller moment but a heartbreaking one that speaks to that loneliness is is towards the end of the film andy he says uh harold ramus does not believe well he, he won't accept unless there's hard proof right and he just like tosses that off like yeah 
you know, Ramus told him to get bent, you know, <laughs> like yeah. at a certain point, like, yeah, just like stop. Yeah, clearly desperately trying to convince his buddy. Like, I don't want to talk about yeah. this. Show me the proof, like mm-hmm. not your videotapes, which he, he does do a lot of videotape referencing and worshiping as well uh, in this film, which I appreciate. But the other incident that he recounts when uh, he's sort of being asked about like men in black, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and he details this incident about about how his show was canceled by the sci-fi channel the same day that he saw and didn't see a car disappear right in front of him while he was also on the phone with Britney Spears. Yeah, it is it's pretty much the climactic moment in this film when this story is unloaded on us. It is full of so many rich details. If anyone is going to check this thing out even just for a little bit after listening to this episode, you know, find this moment within the last 20 minutes of it because he just talks about standing out on 42nd Street and he gets a phone call from Britney Spears saying she's going to be on SNL and she would love for him to show up and he just like downplays that element of the story so much he's like yeah of course Britney I'd love to be there anything for you Britney but then he notices a a black car across the street with a really fuzzy license plate and it was just a matter of turning his head to the left acknowledging Britney on the line and then turning it back and the car was gone. But in that car, there were two men who were like giving him like a very deep and scary stare. And I think his exact wording there is he says, you know, whether those are men in black type figures, you know, who could say? But that mm-hmm. may have been the situation. Regardless, the car vanished. His mapping of the space is that it was a physical impossibility that that car could have driven away without him seeing it. Mm-hmm. And then he says moments later, like later that day. His show was canceled, and he thinks it was because of national security reasons that he was really getting to a truth and that the government or the slash men in black or maybe both were the ones shutting him down. Though I love his detail at the end, too, where he mentions, like, but don't worry, I still got the tapes. I'm going to try and make some DVDs. But that's also on a certain level, kind of a bizarre aspect to it is that I really then did a deep dive and tried to research it and they haven't ever been released. Really? Uh, no, they, wow. it's not. It, it, the, the name of the show out there, right? It's not out there. Uh, and I was never able to find a, an explanation for it. Now, again, on the sort of like you know, cynical level, you could just be like, man, this thing must have been so bad. That just they real were like, low rent. Yeah, even sci-fi rejected it. Right, they were just like, come on, get out there. But on another level, like, this is a dude with a name that is for a niche community probably, like, very, very, very much uh, uh, well-respected enough that if you did put out, you know, Dan Aykroyd out there, his eight episode DVD or whatever, (laughs) people would buy it, you know? This is pre-ancient aliens, like the audience was there, you know? Absolutely. So, right, I mean, on the one hand, I I would say like, okay, well, it's, you know, yeah, it was probably shit, it was probably like embarrassingly bad, but on another level, like, think about all the crap that is out there that has been like almost independently released. Uh, Like, why is this thing something we can't see that that maybe not to the level he is 
positing, right, that it's like, oh, it's national security, but maybe there was something in there and it could be something very, very small, but that there's something in there for legal reasons that the powers that be would, would say, this can't be shown, this can't be aired, right? He talked about some crazy shit that they were looking into, like cattle mutilations. Oh, yeah. It's uh, going endangered species mode. Right. Yeah. You know, I mean, that... I did think it was extremely surprising that there was no footage or even photographs of the show present in the documentary. I mean, he says it's it got the tapes. Exist. I know maybe, you know, the, the, the what he owns is probably called into question there, what's allowed to be used in the documentary with, like, fair permissions, but it was strange that we didn't get to see any of it in the film either. And still to this day, it's, it's, yeah. it's nowhere to be found. I mean, uh, I could not find any explanation for it. So I guess we have to accept his there's, version of events. Yeah, there's hidden dimensions at play here. He's talked to a lot of guys about that, I know. I really, too, like, just couldn't help but, like, crack up when Serrata at a certain point asked him uh, about interdimensional travel oh on, my that, God, dude. on that subject that you brought up, Mars. Uh, interdimensional travel. I think it's something like, you know, Serrata too, and his... His, his question kind of, yeah, is his kind of unbelievable. Clunky. Right. Mm -hmm. When he first even says, like, he's like, interdimensional travel, and then it's like, cut to Ackroyd, sweaty, and the nod that he gives, like, big, his eyes go wide, and he's just like, here we go, now. Let's get let's get real, right? It's like when one of us brings up Bazinian realism, the way our eyes all connect in those moments. Mm. Yeah, and and Serrata is all over the place. He's like um, interdimensional travel. I mean, not just traveling through our dimension, but going into alternate dimension, dimensions. Dan, um, uh, would you? And if you could, a spaceship arrives in your yard, and you know you got you got the barbecue out, and there's the. Uh, steak on the grill and, and they want you right now to come with them and go into another dimension <laughs> and to move forward and backwards on the timeline to go forward in time and backward in time if you could move forward and backward in time are there any events in human history that you would interfere with that you would change to alter the destiny and the course of humanity Mm -hmm. Like, that's his, the question. Right. And his mm -hmm. answer is like, well, of course, you know, I would go back and I would drown a 15-year-old Hitler. <laughs> What? Well, it's 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 a little more it's a little more intricate than that because yes, he does again like you know in another weird way like have a very oddly like specific detail about <laughs> right. like killing Hitler specifically but like drowning a fifteen year old Hitler in a river right but but I, I give him credit because he does have a very thoughtful take where he's like of course I would love to go to the future but. Give it up to Ackroyd, who respects like the paradox of time travel, where he's like, interfering with the past is a very dangerous thing. I mean, he respects that. Yeah, he doesn't want to get butterfly affected. <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, like, <laughs> he at least gets that. And, and he's like, yes, there is that kind of knee jerk idea of drowning a 15 year old Hitler. And I just pictured Ackroyd, like, just just holding a 15-year-old Adolf Hitler's head in a in like a river in in southern Germany with his sleeves rolled up yeah in his in his vest and his plaid shirt but but 
he's it's very thoughtful. I mean, he he understands that like you know history isn't as simple as as uh, as a single individual because he's like, look, if it wasn't Hitler, it probably would have been some other guy. He brings up Otto Dinkel. You know, he's like, there were other guys who were also yeah. Stop. Hitler didn't invent anti-Semitism. Exactly. You know? right? I mean, it's yeah. in those moments, and there are many moments where I did think like. Aykroyd doesn't really come off too bad in this film. You know, I think Serrata comes off way worse in a weird way, you know? Yeah. But I thought, like, at the end of the day, I was like, yeah, like, he, he believes in all this shit. But, like, he, he's not that crazy, you yeah. know? Like, mm-hmm. there is some something there. Yeah. You know, when he, I will say that when he was talking about the dangers of time travel and futzing with the past, I could not help but think, you know... Ashton Kutcher's The Butterfly Effect did come out the year before, and depending on when they recorded this conversation, he really may have like just seen it. So I was. We all have, uh, yeah. We yeah. So it was something <laughs> I was thinking about. Like he, this guy very possibly had just the butterfly effect on the brain. Yeah. Well, it was two thousand five. That's all yeah. I'll say. Everyone did. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then further. You know, in that conversation then, uh, where he then takes it to, uh, you know, if you could go back then with interdimensional travel and maybe not, uh, you know, affect the past or try to change the past, like, are there people, is there anybody you would love to go visit? And I fucking died over his response where he just says, you know... Yeah, the the quantum physics guys, right? And he just says, you know, Einstein, and he just starts spitting out all these these great quantum physicists, you know, these these like geniuses in the world in the world of physics. And I was thinking to myself, what the fuck would you, Dan Aykroyd, have to talk to these guys about quantum physics? I guess, right? I guess, but holy shit, man! Like, take it easy, dude. Like, relax. I mean, like any of these guys, he clearly fancies himself uh, some kind of scientist. You know, he says metallurgy maybe a hundred times. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I should have kept a tally. I was thinking about it. And, and that's where that's why, you know, they both like love that that Hutchison guy, because like that that was like a big thing about Hutchison was that, you know, when people really started to try to go into what John Hutchison was was saying, you know, in his like instructional videos where he shows all of his crazy technology, people are like, man, he's just saying things that don't mean anything. He kept talking about zero point energy, and 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 you have like dudes from NASA who are like, what the hell is zero point energy? It doesn't mean anything. It's just like techno babble that that they they sprout out and and these dudes, Serena and Aykroyd, like they just love that techno babble bullshit. They 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 go in on it hard. I mean, when David Serena then like later lays out like his I called it like David's inception, you know, when oh, like yeah. he, when he has his like extended solo. And That's the most like Eisensteinian part too with like the graphics. Yes, yes. And folks listening at home, I couldn't possibly explain to you what it means because again, it is just all fucking techno babble. It is a a very 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 uh, troubling uh, bit of of nonsense to try to to, to make sense of <laughs> and he he wrote a book too i like could not find a ton about david serrata but he did write a oh actually a couple of books but one of them you can get on amazon for uh 
through Prime, 58 bucks and 43 cents, evidence the case for NASA UFOs, and it actually features an introduction by Dan Aykroyd. I bet it does. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a really inspired bit. Like when when Serrata is just going off because like he says throughout all that. He's, he's like the new way as I propose and says like the new approach several times. Mm-hmm. And when he finished, Kyle and I looked at each other and we're just like, what's the new approach? Like he, like, he didn't say it yet. You know, he just kept like detouring. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, like he, it's, it's Serrata's inception moment. Like, yeah. But see, and to me, like this is, this is one of the things that I've always understood in the world of science as, you know, one of the the, the issues with physics that, that even in, like, the scientific community people talk about is that, like, in the, the field of, like, science, physics is sometimes looked down upon as, as you know, this, this purely at times, like, theoretical field that, that can sometimes be populated by by fucking crackpots and charlatans because if they're only dealing in theories, if they're only dealing with, with stuff like that, that Serrata is trying to be like, well, it's, it's, it's quantum physics. It's all theoretical. Right. I mean, it's like the, none of it has to actually ever be, be tested. Right. And, and you can find these people who are just basically just making shit up. Yeah. It just sounds like a guy that, that has has thought a lot about this, but clearly hasn't actually been educated in it at all. No offense. I mean, I don't know his level of education, but he does say uh, wormholes are even more exotic. Mm-hmm. And while the boys of you know Dan Aykroyd unplugged are riffing on the theoretical in the hidden, it's it's much more practical because it's it's real, right? And it's yeah. and it's a fiction. And one thing that I uh, want to highlight as we were talking about technology earlier as it relates to aliens there is one piece of technology that uh well actually well there's two pieces that i want to talk about but one piece of alien technology that uh prominently features in the hidden which is like this weird little dune gun that kyle mclaughlin has of course that will you know suck in the alien or whatever it'll vaporize uh, or vaporize it when it's out of its host yeah it kind of looked like a weird little sex toy you know yeah absolutely because that's that's one issue we should point out you know because people have probably heard us say like and then this guy gets blown away and then the (laughs) alien it's like well how do you stop this thing we discover However, this bit of technology that Marsh has, has brought up is the only thing that can possibly like break up this this alien's you know organic composition. This this one like ray gun that that Lloyd Gallagher has, which is of course we discover also totally harmless to the the biological makeup of humans as he as he shoots uh Beck with it and Beck's like whoa and I kind of get the feeling it was like a little tingly because he kind of oh, yeah. like he kind of like liked it 
Oh, it looked like it felt good. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah. yeah, this poses a problem, of course, because then Gallagher can't just use the cool alien gun whenever he sees the host, right? right. He's got to wait until it vacates the host. And so there has to be a hybrid approach here. Uh, and a really nice touch in the film is that there is a uh, a homemade flamethrower that's introduced <laughs> earlier in the film yeah. as something that's been taken off the street and ultimately of course it's it's Chekhov's flamethrower and that flamethrower is you know going to roast the senator uh host uh to get the alien out of the body and I thought you know just thinking right now about it right like it is the opposite of all the things that the you know the the bad alien goes for shiny new things here's this homemade flamethrower from the street <laughs> that's yeah. going to take him out at the end of the day yeah it's true and then you know I, the hidden ends up in a really weird place i feel like it has such an odd final series of moments there's there's a set of incidents that add up and make sense and are sort of what you would expect where, you know, Kyle's partner, our guy, Tom, it does get shot in the gut and it looks really, really bad. And Kyle is anguished at the sight of another partner downed by this, this alien. And we get a scene in the hospital where Tom is, is bedridden. It looks extremely severe uh, the doctor, you know, he doesn't exchange any words with Tom's wife, but it is like quite clear with his body language in his eyes that she had just received some terrible news. She exits in the hall to her daughter, who is dressed very posh, like has a very nice dress on with her stockings. Like she's like getting ready for, you know, dad to wake up. So we know Tom is like a goner. And then, of course, Kyle comes in. Um, he climbs out of his hospital bed because he was wounded during all of these incidents. Um, yeah, he did like a full suicide run. He got he shot did. like a hundred times. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but he's still, you know, as an alien, he has the strength to just <laughs> get up and walk into Tom's hospital room. You know, strokes him very gently and decides like, okay, I'm going to... Well, I guess this is a kind of a question mark. He's going to transfer his life essence into... <laughs> into Tom. And so when they, the family does return and Kyle's dead on the ground and Tom is okay, like the film kind of wraps up. There's some details that I'll get to in a moment, but I guess one question I do have for how you both read this moment, because obviously the precedent in the film is that the moment this alien creature, the other race, the slimy race, gets inside the host, that host is dead and gone. And now the like brain and everything is being controlled by the alien. That host, the identity of that host is now the alien. Do you think that that's what's happening at the end? That like, it's not that Kyle is giving Tom, like he's not giving up his life for his partner, Tom, but that Tom is now Kyle and it's like a face-off situation. And it's going to be like Kyle fucking Tom's wife and raising his daughter. Well, you you you've been referring to him as Kyle McLaughlin, the actor, but but for 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 those who might have been confused, because I was calling him Gallagher. We're we're talking about the alien who yeah yeah. So so the Gallagher, the alien, not Kyle <laughs> McLaughlin, the actor. But but here's the thing: they're they're 
they are different species. Right. Uh, right. So, so whatever, you know, Al Haig, uh, he's, he's a different type of alien than, than the Altarian, which I don't think we ever get its actual name. We just know that it's, it's an Altarian. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He, he's now just putting himself in this, this corpse. So yes, Beck. Yeah. Okay. He's dead and gone. I wasn't sure if he maybe just had like a magic power and that was the idea. Because otherwise, I think the ending's really weird. <laughs> you know, like he's gonna live as Tom. Because again, to go back to to what Ackroyd had discussed about you know uh, invasive uh, invasive <laughs> invasive Sperm like drainage, right? Yeah, <laughs> you know, in this case, Gallagher uh, waits. Al Haig, I should I should say Al Haig. Al Haig. Yeah. Waits until Beck has officially died. You know, he doesn't That's do true. it while he's still alive. So there is no, uh, I'm, I'm forcibly taking you over against your will. Now, granted, he might not have wanted that, but he's dead. So he's not there to sort of object. He's not overtaking Beck's brain and his persona. He's simply, for the sake of this this family, in his own way, kind of being like, they love this man. Uh, I guess I'll I'll allow them to to still have time with him. Yeah, Al Haig is very moved uh, by his interactions with Beck's daughter when he goes over for dinner in this like really bizarre sequence. But there's, you know, again, it's not really clear because this movie just keeps moving along, you know. But there is like this connection established between Al Haig and the daughter, right? Yeah. I think it's kind of implied that like she can somehow sense that he's just by looking at him, just yeah. by his his aura that he's he's from another world, like he's an alien, there's something off. Because yeah, that's the thing at the ending that you might be getting at, Ryan, because the daughter, you know, when he just suddenly miraculously makes a recovery after he's yes, transferred his transferred his essence or whatever into into Beck's corpse. The daughter, the, the the wife is very like amazing. You know, my 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 beloved husband, he's back. You know, he didn't die, but the daughter's very hesitant. Like she senses it, even though the wife doesn't immediately sense anything is up, but the daughter does, and then she sort of reluctantly like reaches out and takes his hand. So yeah, you know, there's clearly like this thing about like, well, maybe the the daughter knows that it's not her dad and the wife doesn't. But of course my thinking is if you then just, you know, and you shouldn't because the movie just moves and it's over and we get the fuck out of here. But if you, if you keep thinking, you'll be like, how many days is it going to be before the wife is like, I know what the hell is going on here? Like you are not my husband. I want the hidden two. That is like a family drama about whether he comes clean and reveals his new identity, or if it's something she susses out as time goes on. And she's realizing the man beside her in bed is not her, her former husband. Yeah. I, I don't know about you guys, but I feel that the ending is, the only, I don't even want to say a sour note, but like just the way, as great as the movie is set up and it, it flows, it's just like the ending feels very, I don't know, kind of compromised on a certain level to me. You hit all these just awesome notes. Like everything was just like on that, on that keyboard and it was just like, ooh, nice chord, another one, another one. And then suddenly there's that, it feels very rushed and kind of 
too much of a, like a just a nice bow on things. I mean, it's very yeah. bleak for a moment. To me, this movie would be even more brilliant if it ends on a much more bleak note of like the alien being in the the senator and now he's surrounded by secret service and it's like tough shit and the idea that oh now you know the president's a fucking alien and there's like what can we do about it now because this thing is now the most protected human on the planet and there's al haig like how the fuck am i gonna get to him and that's like ultimate sci-fi territory of that kind of ending of just like uh-oh folks you know it's we're all fucked here and there's nothing we can do about it but this is just the 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 nice happy ending for yeah. everybody i guess except for back on a certain level well, and his family you now have alien dad i yeah, mean it, but he's it, a sweetheart <laughs> though i mean that Gallagher is true is a, he's, he's a sweetheart is, he he's a good a... family man <laughs> yeah it was a big whatever moment for me i was like yeah i i would have much preferred a a darker more sinister way to cap it all off yeah i think your version would have lent itself better to a sequel andy because it's like oh the president's an alien that movie can get made you know not the sitcom version, although I'm still I'm still not over the fact that uh, several years here before Twin Peaks, Kyle MacLachlan walks into a police station and says, FBI, Seattle. <laughs> I mean, it's like it's, yeah. it's kind of an unbelievable, I don't know, bit of his career, you know. He's also playing like a Dougie Jones I version know. of Dale Cooper. Yeah. Yeah, just like this stilted alien version of Dale mm-hmm. Cooper. I mean, it's there, dude. It's you gotta all wonder, there. Lynch, you know, did he see this movie? Was he a big fan? Did he look at this and go, holy shit? Yeah, he was working with Kyle around the same time. They had, like, such a close friendship. I'm sure he was watching Kyle's films and reacting to them and kind of having that in the back of his mind. The hidden dimensions. The truth is out there. That's right. <laughs> I want to believe yeah, well, Marsh, I hope we found some truth for you. It was out there, and this is what we brought as our evidence. Um, what are some other <laughs> pieces of evidence that you've come across over the years that you'd like to share with us that that you're quite fond of <laughs> as evidence? <laughs> well, uh, you know, really, you know, the real answer, of course, is that all my favorite alien movies are probably John Carpenter movies, but I'm not going to say that. So uh, in the past couple years, I've been uh, slowly working my way through uh, the filmography of Kinji Fukusaku, and I want to highlight here one of his great international co-productions, 1968's The Green Slime, uh, which has one of the great soundtracks, rock and roll original songs, The Green Slime, I'll put it in here. Um, yeah, it's about, you know, uh, these these astronauts and this, like, uh, asteroid coming for Earth, and then the green slime are these aliens that attack everyone. And it's, yeah, this, like, broke-ass sort of international co-production thing. Uh, I think it might have even been a mystery science theater. And it kicks ass. Yeah, it's awesome. And uh, I think it's one that uh, any any fan of science fiction should see the green slime. I haven't seen it, so that's definitely now on my list. Oh yeah, yeah, it's it's on mine too. I've I've heard you talk about it before, and I'm still excited. <laughs> I gotta find more truth. <laughs> Yep, 
Absolutely. The green slime are coming. That's the truth. Well, you know, thank you both for for sitting through Dan Aykroyd unplugged on UFOs with me. Um, it was nice I mean, to... You know, I I brought it up to you as well. I was <laughs> I was this close yeah. to picking it. Yeah, so I guess Marsh, thank you for being such a good sport. Um, I you know it went uh, the act of watching the film was a lot smoother than I was anticipating. So I that's like a just a bit of like good fortune that we encountered um um there. But um yeah, Andy. So I guess what 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 do, <laughs> how can I approach uh, the next topic? What do you have lined up for us? Well, it's uh, going to be episode 52, and as Marsh mentioned earlier, we've been, I think, uh, all of us sort of uh, tracking these these kind of like arbitrary milestones of, you know, 100 movies, 51 episodes, is that 52 weeks, a year, whatever. Anyway, regardless... Uh, it's been about a year that we've been together now doing this podcast. And I have to say, I feel incredibly lucky to, to be here with, with you two and to be taking part in all of this and, and in thinking about how, how fortunate I am, how lucky I am to be, to be taking part in something like this with, with two of my best friends. Um, I think it's a great subject to explore feeling lucky with the boys, episode 52, 52 Pickup. Let's take a look at movies about gambling and luck. So bring me that. Bring me movies about games of chance, games of skill, fortune, glory, all that good stuff. I'm all in. Absolutely, yeah. The, the gauntlet was a bit of a gamble, but we have uh, gotten our, you know, gotten our money back definitely with those um, those lovely letters that we've received. At least two of the three have been um, real jackpots. So, uh, just reminding everyone, please uh, reach out to us at Marsh's Mailbag. Thank you. <laughs> As always, you can follow us on Twitter at Gauntlet Movies or send an email to Marsh's Mailbag at GauntletMoviePodcast at gmail.com. Thanks. What, what I've been able to do is just open people's minds a little bit and, uh, and, and let them think about it. And, of course, the greatest proof are, are the kinds of tapes that now exist, the kind of videos that, that exist. Um, and uh, usually when I, when I show some tape uh, of some different things that have been exposed to me, well, that, it's pretty convincing. And then at that point, uh, people have to go in and, and accept that, you know, that, the, that these things are, are, are a part of our, our reality. Well, what I'd like to, you know, what, I'd, what we'd all like to affect is, is some positive change in the world and try to help the... The tipping point where where good tips to, to overflow evil in the world. I mean, you know, we know there's good and bad out there, yin yang, black white, um, and uh, you know, it's, it's it, there are you know tremendous just tremendous divisiveness in the planet, and you know, perhaps this study and this this understanding of things that are greater than we have accomplished technologically. Uh, will lead us to a spiritual awakening, uh, one that helps us respect other beings out there in the universe and other dimensions and also in our own uh, four dimensions and here in the physical world that we live in. The sacredness of human life, uh, 
willingness to get along a little better, to relinquish materialism and territoriality in favor of a more um, comprehensive uh, worldview, which uh, in which we unite and we all feel the energy uh, within us uh, as as part of a uh, part of a universal light.